There will no longer be aerial law, it may be hazardous to predict it, for the term ether itself only adds a ignorance. We dare not call it ethereal law, but certainly it is a question of space law. El podcast interplanetario. La exploración del espacio en beneficio de toda la humanidad. Sus anfitriones en Inglaterra y los Países Bajos, Matt Russell y Julio Aprea. We never, ever, ever coincide on how to pronounce the name. No, we don't. <laughs> must, be a, must be a cultural difference yeah. or something. Hey, Matt. Oh, hi. Hi, hi, Julio. How are you? Uh, pretty good, and you? Uh, yeah, pretty good. You look tired. <laughs> um, that's how I always look. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, it's just my, it, it's my resting face. I have a tired <laughs> resting face. You got a something resting face. Um, there's a <laughs> uh, we got a guest on today, Julio. Uh, 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 Brian Kotick from he's a partner from international boutique law firm MB Kemp LLP. What do they do in this boutique law firm? I think well, he, uh, what Brian does, he's the co-head of the firm's international arbitration practice in London. They do law around treaties and, and all sorts internationally. What are the odds, Matt? Aren't there a bunch of treaties related to other space? Uh, well, exactly. Exactly, Julio. This is why Brian wanted to come on. He wanted to talk about space arbitration, which I didn't really know what that was until I thought, well, let, let's, let's get Brian on. I wanted to talk about law for a long time. I know it's a subject that you find totally fascinating, Julio. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and, but he uh, he explains arbitration during the interview, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. I can't, wait. I can't wait to hear it. I thought what would be nice is to talk about how space law came about in the first place, which is that ve the very first quote at the top of the show, Julio, Emil mm -hmm. Lord, I'd never heard of him. It's 111 years old, 111 years old. 111 years old uh, since he was born or since no, he since wrote he, this since statement? he wrote that statement. So that's okay. that's 1910. Emil Lord was a Belgian lawyer. It might be the very first time that someone had ever talked about space law. He was ahead of his time. Well, not just ahead of his time. I mean, decades ahead of his time. He seems to have said, this is what he said. He basically said, the problem of ownership and the use of Hertzian waves, now Hertzian waves are radio waves, of course, will be mm -hmm. posed one day. So I think he's talking about how there's limited radio electromagnetic spectrum. Exactly. And, of course, you'll have uh, satellites and things like that maybe uh, as radio stations and... and uh, interfering with each other. Interfering points. with each other. And that will be so high up that it won't be a case of, of looking at aerial law, but there'll be a practical questions and they need to call it space law because he thinks that ethereal law would be ridiculous. And look how much ahead of his time he was. He's talking about Hertzian waves and that the ownership and assignment will have to be dealt with at some point. And indeed, we have that today with the International Tele Telecommunications Union mm -hmm. assigning spec dif different spectrums for different uses. 
Yeah. So, well, not many people think of radio waves as being this finite resource as well. That you know, you can only stuff in so many different applications: four G, three G, five G, Wi-Fi, radio mics, in-ear monitors. Not many people from the general public think about that. No, because I'm sure that our colleagues from the ITU probably think about that <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Well, in in this country, in in Britain, we have Ofcom. Who uh, who are the people that look after what's known as the TV license that pays for the BBC? Quite a unique way of of paying for your public broadcasting. But that we have gone slightly off topic here. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's an interesting, isn't it, that he's he's realised that, and so he's the first mention of space law, um, which which is absolutely incredible. And nineteen ten. Nineteen ten. No one was obviously impressed because it took another sixteen years for uh, a chap called V.A. Zaza, which is a pretty cool name, isn't I it? I love Zaza. the name. Zaza. Yes. Uh, and he, uh, this was at the Air Law Conference in Moscow in 1926. Now, Air Law Conference. <laughs> the Air Law Conference in Mons- Moscow, 1926. Fun times. Now, he presented a paper um, that, that, again, questioned uh, this this idea of air law having to be uh, looked at again because it's going to be slightly odd that the higher you get into the stratosphere, et cetera, et cetera. And he because w- if I understand correctly, in theory, the each country has sovereignty on the air on top of them, hmm. right? Yeah, because this was you know people had started to fly and you could have overflying. Uh, planes that were carrying uh, optical and infrared reconnaissance. You could get bombed. You could have contraband yep. dropped in there. You could have planes falling in and creating havoc. So the the question that we're having by these sort of proto-space lawyers mm. is, okay, we should probably make a difference between air law yeah, and, and space uh, law. Yeah, and w- at what point does it – at what point do we demarcate this 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 bit and obviously he was being influenced because there was people like Solkovsky and people like that who were living in Moscow at the time and also writing papers about interplanetary flights so obviously it was um something that was obvious that you had to exclude vehicles capable of extreme speeds and altitude altitude yeah you know so also because there was then no way to enforce it well, it'd certainly be hard. So you you can. What, what's the point in 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 prohibiting something if you then cannot enforce it? We still there, there's still elements of space law that haven't sort of come up yet, but it's definitely interesting, isn't it? There's, there's another guy called Korovin who was a Russian a diplomat who then picked this thread back up in 1934. Mm-hmm. But he was very much saying, no, we shouldn't get rid of this sovereign right all the way forever above us. <laughs> that no one should be flying over the top of your country, no matter how high. Which does seem ridiculous, doesn't it? But I guess it's quite hard to get your, your head round. <laughs> We're talking about 1934. You're not yet aware of all the uses yeah. that will happen in, in space. I mean, there are many theories, right? But think about it. If you own everything that is above you if you're the country and you don't put an end to that what you're reaching what the end of the universe yeah you can claim yeah. you can claim the to, all the way to the end of the universe it makes absolutely no sense yeah well i think probably the mega hero of of space law is vladimir mandel who's a czechoslovakian 
and this is 1931. Young guy, he's a pilot, a lawyer, a writer, an inventor, an engineering professor. <laughs> and he's the one that sort of, st well, obviously, with someone with that kind of um, very varied kind of skill set. A polymath. He is a polymath, yeah. He, he starts to realise multiple problems that are starting to emerge because of rocket flight. And, and the reason why he's so into rocket flight, he's joined the VFR, the Viren für Raumschiffart, as they say. That sounds familiar. Yeah, the very oldest space society in the world. However, it's not still going. Our friend from the last episode, Mr. Von Braun, was part of it. Yep. It's one of the most influential early space rocket societies for sure. But even then, even after that 1931 paper, the consensus was, you know, you had to protect your military airspace, basically, and it would all always just remain the same. The people just weren't thinking about what you do above that space. I see that there are two schools at the moment, right? There are this, this group that think that there should be a limit to the sovereignty, and this other school that says, no, all the way up, however long, still part of my country, right? Yeah. There's also, I guess there's a slight change as well. There's a slight shift of saying, not only should we demarcate space, but we should also say beyond that point, there shouldn't be sovereignty at all, that it should be unrestrained by sovereignty. Which, which, for all mankind. For all mankind, which is... Sorry, for all humankind. For all humankind, yeah. Um, Having watching the show too much, it sticks. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it took until the mid-50s before this idea of peaceful use of outer space would even be, be an, a concept. Uh, and until then, the state would, would, uh, would deny an overflight even for peaceful or scientific purposes. However, in uh, at least in the law of the sea, there is the concept of a sort of passage, right? Yeah. If, if in, I think it's innocent passage that if you're going from point A to point B and you have to cross some sovereign waters, I don't know exactly under what criteria, but in theory you should be able to go. And absolutely, but of course, this is the time now. The von Braun's being very successful with the V two rocket and people are realizing not you can actually send rockets very very high up out of airspace and hit targets thousands of miles and away very far yeah two important papers in the 1940s and one of my favorites is arthur c clark good old arthur c clark and he presented a paper at the british interplanetary society in october the 5th 1946 uh, the Challenge of the Spaceship, subtitled Astronautics and Its Impact Upon Human Society. And it contains this assessment, and this is just absolutely brilliant. What thing written by Arthur C. Clarke is not brilliant? It's absolutely classic, because it does make a mockery of the whole idea of having sovereign airspace above a certain point. Because he says, you know, in the course of a day, on a rotating globe... Every country will lay claim to a large portion of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. Exactly. Uh, By the way, you already have a British accent. Why do you make it even more British? <laughs> this isn't a, it's just a generic southern English accent now, to my disgrace. 
I would not be able to know the difference. Mm. You just you just don't sound American to me. What I like about the Arthur C. Clarke one though is that it's the first it's the first one that that is logic based. You know, he's just using logic. There's no militaristic kind of opinion to it. But what I do think's actually incredible about it is that he points out that Great Britain has lost its kind of imperialistic urge, urge. And, you know, he says, you know, it's the worst it's the worst thing and it's dying in his country and he's glad about it. He's glad about the flag waving coming yeah. to an end. But, he's, but he points quite <laughs> frankly at, at uh, the United States uh, being a bit imperialistic and saying that they want to be the number one power of the atomic age and that it must... And, and this, actually, this really caught my attention because we're talking about 1946. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just before... So we're talking yeah. like American first... Yeah, <laughs> how many decades before Trump? Well, yeah, and it, right, and and the U.S. hasn't hasn't quite established itself as the superpower yet. You know, this is, I mean, it's very close to being the number one power on Earth. But even Arthur C. Clarke could see those intentions. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just just check at the double discourse that on the one side, a guy like Arthur C. Clarke can see that the the U.S. is trying to go for. Um, to be number one, to be an empire, to be imperialistic. Well, in the US, they sell themselves to their own population as freedom fighters and beat the Nazis and, and all that, right? Yeah. Even today, it's, it's like uh, you can see that there are certain communicators that now are addressing these sort of topics, hey. but always the discourse is we free the world we have. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the thing about us, he's very balanced. He says, I, I do not think we need to take this sort of 16th century buccaneering too seriously, but it represents a threat which it would be unwise to ignore. The menace of interplanetary imperialism can be overcome only by worldwide technical and political agreements well in advance of the ad actual event. And these will require continual pressure and guidance from the organisations which have studied the subject. This is 1949, and he, and he's basically no, sorry, 1946, and he's basically saying we need to sort this problem out. We need to, we need to actually get some agreements in place. I mean, he's basically outlined the entire problem, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, he's he's definitely good. Uh, 1948 as well. Uh, a couple of years later, the U.S. Department of State. Uh, called the in Discussions Asked on Territorial Problems of Antarctica. Now, of course, the reason why we're talking about Antarctica is that there is a connection between the Outer Space Treaty and Antarctica because Antarctica was a similar kind of problem where it's like, well, who who lays sovereign claim to that? And the states basically said we should um, make it a international zone and that we should sort this problem out most effectively by internationalizing Antarctica. How convenient, right, for the United States? <laughs> because let me tell you what. First of all, we will hear during the interview that the United States did not ratify the Moon Treaty. Mm. Okay? Uh, but who had claims on Antarctica until then? Australia, Argentina, Chile, France, New Zealand... Norway and the United Kingdom. Who did not have a claim on Antarctica? <laughs> the ones that are proposing to make it 
uh, international and common for everyone. Uh-huh. There is always this hypocrisy in which whatever is not owned by them <laughs> has to be international, mm. but whatever is owned by them, it doesn't, it, 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 it does not cut it. So the Moon Treaty, just Guantanamo, whatever islands where there are military bases. Yeah. It's, it's always like that. It's completely hypocritical. Well, yeah, but it's been a good thing, though, hasn't it, that, that Antarctica's international? I guess. It, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I, but, I, I know what you're saying. I definitely... But then if we say Antarctica should, should have this state, let's do the same about Alaska, right? It's also far away in the cold. <laughs> well, we, we, I mean, where do you stop? Exactly. Make Scotland an international zone? That'd be quite good. Svalbard. <laughs> 1948, uh, there was uh, an ex- distinguished air law expert, John Cobb Cooper, gave a talk called The Future Use of Guided Missiles Above the Airspace. And he basically was working on the same kind of lines as Arthur C. Clarke and, and tried to come up with a sort of thought experiment that if you had country A start wanting to bomb country C, and he knew about, you know, rockets now, guided missiles and if if those rockets had to fly over country b has country b been brought into the war has has the neutral rights of country b been affected i.e if germany was firing rockets over the top of switzerland to to hit the uk or to hit france would switzerland be annoyed and and he was sort of saying that that, that this needs to be sorted out that there needs to be this kind of utter upper limit, um, and his his analysis of the airspace question uh, became the standard reference point for, for 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 this for where space becomes space in terms of the law. At the end of the day, the the Karman line is a is a physics calculation uh, that then the lawyers can use as a reference to separate between air and outer space mm. right but then uh, again the international standard could which is the Karman line but it's let's say rounded up to a hundred kilometers mm. however in the in the US organizations I don't know they, like the 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 US Air Force or NASA define it at 80 kilometers or 50 miles mm. I guess in miles it sounds nicer 50. In, in kilometers, it sounds nicer, 100, and that's how... Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, it's not long after, of course, that uh, Cooper... He, he's bringing up this this question, but Cooper then goes on to talk about, in you know, after 57, after Sputnik, he writes a book called uh, the, <laughs> the Right to Fly, which is the legal thoughts about, you know, what what the hell's happening with man-made satellites in orbit when Sputnik flies over America, is it invading America's airspace? Right. Um, now, here's a really brilliant one. Have, have you heard of R.A. Smith? Okay. Space Woods guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. He R.A. Smith did a book with Arthur C. Clarke, which is one of the best books ever because it's got pictures of lunar landers with legs looking very similar to what they actually look like and it's got spacesuits in there as well another british interplanetary society guy and he wrote a letter that had a small phrase in it that essentially cut to the the very heart of space law for the next 50 years 
and the letter uh, is in defence of the moon. And he writes it really basically having a go at the US. Um, and it, it says, the moon is not their property. It is the common heritage of man. And it's this common heritage of man that's then used by another guy called Lionel Lamming in a French uh, pamphlet in 1949 that says, the conquest of space may mean that all the solar system and not only the Earth deserves to be considered as the heritage of mankind. So this heritage of mankind became a sort of huge, like brilliant concept started by R.A. Smith. Color me cynic. <laughs> but yet again, I can see the hypocrisy because how, what are, they, what are the odds that these people in these countries in England and in France are coming with these statements as their power and their colony power is declining. So the moment, the moment that they, those countries don't have power anymore, everything has to be common for humankind. <laughs> and then they point wow, the finger at the other guy. So it's, it's just cynical, like, I, well, it's like, it's like these days when we were, we talk about, um, global warming and we all point our fingers at China. So all these countries, all the West polluted for God knows how long. And now we complain about those that are trying to develop to the same levels that we already have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always pointing in the other direction. Yeah. It's not lost on me that, of course, Arthur C. Clarke having a go at America for imperialism. It's a, it's a little bit rich. And I guess you're absolutely right. But I would say that that common heritage of mankind is a good concept. That it, it's got to be a good concept. However, you know, it's you know, for for some people, I guess it it means that how, how do we push on into space without capitalism? And capitalism is obviously I was going to go in that direction because by that thought, isn't it? Could it be that if you cannot lay claim on things, if you cannot claim ownership? why would you go there in the first place other than for exploration purposes? But for exploration, you go, you plant your flags, and, and then you go back like the Everest. And um, the same could apply to Antarctica, okay? Hmm. If countries could actually carry commercial activities in Antarctica, would Antarctica be more developed? Yeah, but that might be a Maybe. bad thing. I mean... I'm not saying it's yeah, a good thing. All I'm saying is, could it be that this common heritage of mankind, which we should, we should now translate to humankind, hmm. could it be that that puts a stop in the development, in the technological development on those areas? Could it be that this approach made space go slower? The only point on which space development and space exploration goes really fast is during the Cold War, is during the race to the moon. Mm. Now, now it's going faster. Now that it's going faster, everyone is is positioning themselves to be able to exploit space commercially, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you start seeing it pick up. No, absolutely. No, I mean it's 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 a tough one because I guess it it is. There is a big philosophical question, a big ideological question over all of it. 
isn't there really as in which which presumably is what makes space law so difficult because you have to satisfy so many cultures so many points of view so many um different systems which which is going to be very very difficult isn't it it conflict Indeed. is almost inevitable <laughs> If it, it, particularly taking a bleak, you know, taking a bleak view at it, it it's it it maybe all that sort of dystopian sci-fi like the expanse is isn't too far off. I guess not. Imagine the day that uh, we have people on Mars, a whole other planet with its own resources, and they want to become independent. Do you think the Earth will let them go independent? Well, especially if the Earth is depending on those resources in Mars. Well, definitely not then. <laughs> I don't know. Think, think of think of again. Think of the U.S. and all those countries in Middle East where they have influence on. Indeed, because of oil. Could the Middle East be Mars? Yeah, the Middle East is a little bit like Mars, isn't it? Really. I mean, yeah. The UAE. The UAE has their sights on Mars, by the way. Oh, big time. Of course they big do. Time. And, and then they just announced some new astronauts. Yeah, first female astronaut uh, of the Arab the uh, Arab world. Yeah, well, <laughs> wait till Saudi Arabia kick in as well. So yeah. uh, anyway, well, I, I, going back, we've only got a couple more things because I'm going to stop at the uh, the outer space treaty. But 1950 is quite a, a monumental one. Something that seems to have gone completely unnoticed is an international agreement between the US and the UK. Um, that allowed America to fire missiles over British sovereign territory. <laughs> um, in other words, you know, it was like, well, let's just let's just make an agreement between ourselves that we can do it. And the UK agreed to the US, and that's why the US started building all their downrange stations on on islands like Grand Bahama, Grand Turk, Antigua, and Ascension Islands. That's that's where that all comes from. Um, 1950. So I suppose that, in a way, is the first international space treaty between the UK and the US. Agreement. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but we can't. The big one, I guess, is the creation of the International Astronautical Federation, the IAF. Now the VFR had disbanded which is why they're no longer the longest-running space um, society. But they'd regrouped as the GFW, the Gesellschaft für Wörterforschung. They'd realised the importance of, of just how quickly um, rocket development was moving. And so they reached out to the British Interplanetary Society and the Groupement Astronautique Français. For for someone like me that does not really speak French, that sounds better. They uh, reached out and they recommended an international meeting of all societies for rocket development, interplanetary travel and space research to foster friendly relations and a successful exchange of knowledge to explore the possibilities of forming an international association for astronautics. Was that some sort of James Bond villain? <laughs> James villain Bond, German villain. It was a perfect yeah. German doing an English accent. Dr. Evil. <laughs> so Alexandra Ananoff, who was the French guy, 
Uh, he organised the first International Congress for Astronautics in Paris, September 1950. Then at the second Congress in London, organised by the BIS, uh, the International Astronautical Federation was organised and then it was adopted as an organisation a year later in Stuttgart in West Germany at the third Congress. Yep. Do you want to go through the well, yeah. founding members of the International Astronautical Federation? Yeah, well, who were the founding members other than the French, the Germans and the Brits? Well, you have Argentina with its Sociedad Argentina Interplanetaria or the Argentine Interplanetary Society. But this one also does not exist anymore. Then you have Austria with the Austrian Society for Space Research. Italy with the Associazione Italiana Razzi, Italian Rocket Association. Spain with the Asociación Española de Astronautica, Spanish Astronautical Association. Sweden, which I will give you the floor. <laughs> you have Sven a very good Swedish Svenska accent. Svenska Swedish Interplanetary Society. Switzerland with the <laughs> Schweizerisch Astronautisch Arbeitgemeinschaft, <laughs> which I presumably is the Swiss Astronautical <laughs> Association, the United Kingdom with the British Interplanetary Society. Well, very good, very good. Is that yeah, is that no, no, is that English? That enough? was quite good. And the United States with the American Rocket Society, the Detroit Rocket Society the Pacific Rocket Society, and the Reaction Research Society. Lots of societies. Slightly different American accents there. Probably all wrong. So yes, 10 countries started the IF. Today, <laughs> the International Association for Falconry, which is not, not the same one. <laughs> the same one. Yet, the International Association for Falconry and Conservation of Birds of Prey has currently 110 associations from 87 countries. So it's more countries assigned up to the falconry than... than, than <laughs> that is genius. More people, more countries worldwide care about falconry and birds of prey than about space. There we go. That just sums it all up. 68 countries, so from 10 to 68. Of course, you have heard about the International Astronautical Federation because it exists up to today. And it organizes, amongst several events, it organizes this International Astronautical Congress that happens every year. Mm. Okay? Back in the day of the Cold War, this was like the only setting where the East and the West scientists would be able to exchange with each other. The IAF has been a very, very important organization for the peaceful uses of outer space, to so having this peaceful exchange between the two sides of the of of the of the Berlin Wall, let's say. Yeah, but and it's the seventieth anniversary in September, which is quite cool, isn't it? So yeah. we're coming up to the seventieth anniversary of the, yeah. coinciding with my fiftieth birthday as well, Julio. Ouch. Yeah, I know it's pretty depressing. You're old, well old. Well, uh, don't worry. 50, 50, 50 is the new thirties, right? Fifties, fifty. May as well be sixty. Sixty may as well be seventy. May as well be dead. <laughs> as they um, say, as my kids keep saying to me, which is pretty annoying. International Astronautical Congress in this year of twenty and twenty-one will take place in Dubai, 
from the 25th to the 27th of October. Wow. And they are still they are planning to do it um, in person. In Dubai? In person. In October. In Dubai. In October. In October. Okay. Um, I don't know. There was an amazing, by the way, there was an amazing insight made at the um, at the 1960, uh, at the 1951 Congress. And they predicted that by 1961, in 10 years' time, that they would have 50-ton satellites that could orbit the Earth at 18,000 miles an hour at 300 miles altitude. And that's before spaceflight had really been demonstrated. You know, this is in 1951. You'd had Sputnik by 1957. So what's, what satellites were going up in 1961? Well, not 50-ton ones. They weren't far off. They knew that, that, you know, they were predicting satellites by 1961, that in 10 years you'd have, okay, they got the weights wrong, but it's pretty good. By? Order, an order of magnitude, let's say. So the Vostok rocket, 1960, gets six ton, uh, gets five tons to orbit. I mean, I, to me, it's still like quite optimistic to think yeah, that but by 1961 you will be launching 50 tons to orbit. It required It required a Cold War and a race to space in between two superpowers spending a lot of their resources just to get there. Mm. No, agree. If it wasn't uh, uh, if it wasn't because of the Cold War. Well, we know anyway, nineteen sixty one, of course, is when Yuri Gagarin goes into space. And that is five tons to low Earth orbit. And that is right now the seventieth anniversary, twelfth of April, nineteen sixty one. This second, right now. 70 years ago. Still impressive. That rocket was... It's essentially the same rocket that takes people... That Sputnik. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that launched Sputnik and takes people to the International Space Station still. I mean, it's not much different, is it? Still part of the R7 intercontinental ballistic it's, missiles. In terms of rocketry, the Soyuz, I think, is one of the most amazing machines yeah. ever built. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. The over-engineering of the time... <laughs> Making it that even today we can keep using it. It's yeah, it's a it's a beautiful piece of engineering, and of course anyone into rocketry reveres it. You have to give it to Korolev. Yeah. Good old Sergei Korolev. Obviously, things moved very very fast after the IAF was um, founded, and there was lots of uh, the universities basically started to 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 pick up on this whole idea. Lots in lots of intellectual journals, including JBIS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and then, of course, Sputnik happened, and that really is the um, impetus for um, the NAS United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUOS. Still going strong today. Absolutely, the committee. So the COP was so the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, set up by the UN General Assembly in 1959 to govern the exploration and use of space for the benefit of all humanity, for peace, security, and development. So th this committee was dealing with, for instance, reviewing international cooperation in peaceful uses of outer space, studying space-related activities that could be undertaken by the United Nations, Encouraging space research programs and studying legal problems arising from the exploration of outer space. And there you have it. COPUOS. 
has the mandate to study legal problems arising from the exploration of outer space. And do you know what makes it unique out of all the organs of the UN? It, the governance? Yeah, there's no voting. It's the, so decisions are only made by consensus. In other words, the absence of objections. So you don't vote, you just object. Which means that when something gets approved, everyone is behind it. Yeah. But it's very difficult to get something approved. <laughs> Absolutely. And by the time you get it approved, the language has been so watered down, right? Mm. In order to please everyone. Still being cynic. Here, yeah, but, but they did manage to get the Declaration of Legal Principles governing the activities of states in the exploration and the use of outer space. And that was adopted unanimously at the United Nations General Assembly in 1963. And that's when mm -hmm. Copios, Copios uh, started um, putting together the Outer Space Treaty, 1967, the Rescue mm -hmm. Agreement of 68, the Space Liability Convention of 72, the Registration Convention of 1976, and the pretty much failed Moon Treaty of 1979. That's when I was born. Oh, there we go. The Moon Treaty. Yeah, but the Moon Treaty in 1979, after the US has already been to the moon. Mm -hmm. And then again, just, just look at the hypocrisy, okay? <laughs> For it's ours. Antarctica, Antarctica, where we don't have a stake, where we don't have a claim, shared for all mankind for peaceful and research uses. The Moon Treaty, where we already have planted our flag, no way we're sharing that. <laughs> we are not ratifying it. Yeah. It's, it's, but I mean, it, look, it's not the US. It's not the UK. I mean, it, the, it's just economic interest all around the world, every single time across the history of humanity. Right. Uh, Julio, do you fancy listening to Brian's take on space law? After our long can't ramble. Wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. This, this is a topic I find enthralling. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into space. Uh, I'm joined on the podcast by Brian Kotick. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. Can you just explain uh, a little bit about what you do, uh, in, in particular arbitration and what, what it actually all is before we sort of hone down on how that affects space and Mars, etc.? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's a niche area of law, I have to say, but it's a private dispute resolution mechanism, uh, usually based off contracts. So your contract will provide at the very bottom that you should go to arbitration instead of going to your domestic courts. Um, but I also do what's called investment treaty arbitration, which is um, international arbitration that's based off international treaties. So it can be between two states or it can be between multiple states. Like you have the Energy Charter Treaty that has a number of signatories. Um, and so that all goes to this private little hotel room and you resolve your disputes there in a panel of one to three arbitrators and it's final and binding. So um, it's basically we're experts in the procedure. Okay, so... Yeah, I mean that that does sound like it's super super handy in certain circumstances, and right. and and I can already see why that is like mega important when it comes to what's going to be happening in space, hopefully in the near in the near future or maybe slightly distant future when exactly when it's clear that we're going to start to get some kind of disputes happening over certain things. So before we go on, is is there a way that you can describe where where we're at in terms of the law and where those laws came from. 
Yeah, absolutely. So kind of the main starting point would be the Outer Space Treaty, and that's a UN treaty. Um, and it's signed by 110 countries. So it's actually been quite widely ratified. Um, and the idea behind the Outer Space Treaty is you kind of have in the in the preamble of the treaty that there's a common interest of all mankind for the use of outer space. And throughout the treaty, you see that space is to be used by all. It's to belong to none. Um, it's for It cannot be appropriated by by any nation. You shouldn't launch nuclear weapons up there. Um, and then it only has, but there is no liability provision. It just basically says that, you know, we have to observe that this is for everyone um, and that we should observe reciprocity as well so that there can be kind of aid in outer space, depending on who's been up there first, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of like the main basis of it. But there's also been, if we kind of move into this idea and movement in space of exploration that everyone's trying to explore what's going on, not only on the surface, but beneath the surface. Um, you've had a subsequent treaty called the Moon Agreement, um, which hasn't been ratified by that many. Only about 18 countries have signed that. But you have the same language, which is space should be used by all. It's a province for all mankind. Um, and this is where we, we kind of get the glimpse of the intention of these states to want to start to mine and really exploit the resources in space. They're, we're basically supposed to be cooperating with each other in space. And unfortunately, that's all well and good until we start realizing that we can get there faster, that there are resources up there, and that these states can actually use them for their, not only domestic benefit, but for their, you know, their space industries in space. Um, so what happened was, is that these sovereign states have started taking it upon themselves to occupy this legal space. So you have the U.S. in 2015 passing a law that says that um, it's called the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitive Act. And it said that these at citizens engaged in commercial recovery of resources um, shall be entitled to that resource. So whereas before the law said um, it's for everyone, well, now you have the U.S. saying that it's actually, if you it's finders keepers. And Luxembourg and actually the UAE, which is interesting because of the HOPE mission, is that they've actually taken the same steps and saying that if, if you find it, according to our national law, then it's yours. Um, and that doesn't really kind of harmonize with the, the status of the international law. Yeah, it, it doesn't really, so it doesn't tie in with the Outer Space Treaty at all. And, and, and is that... The reason why no one wants to even kind of go near the Outer Space Treaty, what what my understanding is that once you start opening that can of worms up, you have to renegotiate stuff that people are really happy about, like the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons in outer space. Is, have, have I got that frame right? That's absolutely right, right. yeah. Yeah, and, and where do things like the Artemis Accords come in? Are they Are they just a sort of variation on the Moon Agreement? Yeah, that's right. So the Artemis Accords had... Um, different intentions, uh, but it's still under this peaceful cooperation uh, between all of these nations. So it, that had to do with NASA's Artemis program. Um, but it still in that language, it has, you know, peaceful exploration and um, emergency assistance between states, but there was nothing to do with who actually owns the property up there and what happens when you mine that property. Um, so it's all really unclear. You have the liability convention uh, that came out, which basically says, 
if you, um, you know, what happens if your satellite that you launched crashes into another person's satellite, who's liable for the damage caused to those satellites. So you do have some liability, but you don't have the, the actual property right that that still needs to be defined. Yeah. And, and um, how I'm understanding this now is, is that there are certain treaties and there are certain laws, but it's very vague in how you might um, enforce those laws or, and how you might help people out if they feel as though they've been <laughs> shafted by those laws. or, the, exactly. or, or, or So, yeah, can you go into a bit of details, uh, maybe some scenarios about how, how that may play out in, in, in the near future? Yeah, so I had, just to give you a real-life example that's happening now, so we're not just talking in hypotheticals, um, I had a case that just had to do, it was based on a contract between two international companies for the delivery of a space launch vehicle. And so that vehicle had certain components, and it was you know manufactured in one jurisdiction and needed to be sent to the sea launch um, off of Kazakhstan, um, and it was delayed, and so the, the case was about that. Um, because you know, you know, you know of all people that if you delay the delivery, then you're going to delay your launch date. Then you have huge issues there, and that costs millions of dollars. Um, and that type of dispute goes. To, so that contract had a dispute resolution provision, actually, to have arbitration based in Stockholm, which is where we had it. And that was based off these UN rules called the UNCTRAL arbitration rules. Um, but there are other institutions that are actually providing space-specific rules to help with your dispute resolution. Uh, so the PCA, which is the Permanent Court of Arbitration, and that's based in The Hague in the Netherlands, um, they have an institution to administer arbitrations and they have their own outer space rules, they call it. And what, what does that mean? Nothing really in procedure, but it what they do give you access to is the arbitrators who decide your case. Um, they give you a panel of people that are more experts in the field of space law or you know space-related um, business so that they can give you kind of a more insightful award on, on your type of dispute. But even these are not really considered to be sufficient to address what's going to happen um, you can have a dispute resolution mechanism, but if there's no law to base your dispute on, then then you still find yourself in a lurch. Yeah, I mean, I I can give I'm off the top of my head. I can think yeah. of a really good example of okay. where where that's something that happens on Earth that 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 like the French and the English and fishing, right? So we've got this 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 resource out in the out in the sea between between France and, and England. And and it seems that there's lots, still lots of argy-bargy, even when Britain was in uh, the EU. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seemed like, yeah, there, there's not much resolution... Uh, there's not much resolution to something like that when clearly there must be tons of laws and, and loads of reasons why they would want to sort it out. So yeah, if we're not I, if we're not able to sort those sort of things out, then yeah, what would then happen if you had a, a, a resource that that two rival nations, mm-hmm. say India and China, mm-hmm. were both going for a singular resource? If if the English and the French, who are you know for all intents and purposes like very close partners have problems with resources how, right. how how on earth do we how do earth we navigate sort of harder resources with with more bitter rivals yeah you're you've actually i'm glad you raised that scenario because that's exactly what people that are analyzing space law disputes have been equating it to is the law of the seas 
Um, and that is specifically interesting to what we want to talk about, which is mining. Um, you know, if talking about mining on Mars, for example, is that there have been all of these disputes because people tried to mine off the continental shelves between these nations and you're trying to access these underwater resources and people were fighting over it. And now those, um, those types of disputes are actually settled um, in The Hague as well. And it's, it's funny, if you actually read one of those awards, they actually start drawing lines in the water to be like, okay, this is your, this is your part of the sea and this is your part of the sea and, and this is where we're gonna draw the line because there are no borders out there. And that's exactly what happens in space. There are no borders. So I think specifically with mining is that it's not only on who owns the space, but who gets access to the, to the resources underneath. But it has happened in the, in the law of the sea. So I think there is inspiration that can be taken for, the, for space. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the the law of the seas is, is is definitely an interesting one. It's one that I keep meaning to sort of read up about <laughs> because presumably we've had a, a couple of thousand years of of running that particular scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let let's home in on something like Mars yes. and and some of the kind of um, some of the issues that we might be sort of facing with Mars and this inability really to to open up the deep space treaty the outer space treaty i should say right. and uh, and 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 the kind of potential pitfalls that are there so what's the most obvious one to you in terms of or what what which one is which one is nearest down the line i did mining would be the first um resource mining you already have it on the moon um and just i i didn't know this until i started you know preparing for this is that you know these asteroids that are circling these planets are so rich in resources. You have these M-type asteroids, for example, where you can get, you know, such a rich amount of metals that could, you know, basically give, be given to the human race for millions of years out of one asteroid. Um, So, and we already see the moon trying to be mined. And I'm not just saying like, you know, getting gold out of the ground, but it could also be resources that you use like, for example, water. Water can be split up into hydrogen and oxygen, and that can be used to have like some sort of propulsion for for a vehicle that's already on Mars or the moon. So um, it's not just the metals that can come out. So I think mining is really going to be the biggest hit because, for example, we don't know much about Mars yet or the surface and what can be mined there. But if we find something completely rich that is in, within our reach and people start fighting over it, well, who's going to have access to that and who's going to own that and who's going to own it underneath? If we're, if we're going on the Outer Space Treaty, technically everyone owns it, so it's just going to be, you know, brawling on, on the surface of Mars. <laughs> yeah, which, <laughs> which, which presumably just can't happen, right? No. As in, so can you, see, can you see another treaty having to be drawn up or, 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 or is that impossible? Is it, is, is it impossible to have a treaty that sits on top of the Outer Space Treaty? Would you have to open up the Outer Space Treaty or, or can you do like an amendment to it? Yeah, so you would, I mean, they have a lot of, so be, back in the 1800s, you had a lot of like cooperation agreements or, you know, this is before trade became a thing. So this is so, and law usually is a bit further back than what happens in scientific and technological advancements. It's usually the law catching up. So I think the law will just have to catch up to what's happening in Mars, and it will be probably a new treaty 
or a new set of rules that has a bit more teeth and has a bit more certainty on what's going to happen. But the, the funny thing is, is that us lawyers can't imagine what can be done on Mars. So we don't, you know, we're looking to the engineers and the, and the technical experts and the enthusiasts to tell us what can actually happen. And then it will be our job to kind of like hammer it down into usable rules that can be applied. But it will be, I think, and that's what's been the call is um, is for new for a new set of rules and a new treaty. Um, but you know, that's just one element of it, and that's just property rights. You know, then you get into criminal law and tort law and constitutional law. Um, yeah, that that is completely unexplored. When the Outer Space Treaty was done, it mm-hmm. was completely improbable that that private individuals would be able to have access to space. Right. Where clearly now, um, when we, it's not just America and China and India and, and Europe that are going into space. It's now Elon Musk can do it on his own. Right. So what, what are the kind of things that that chucks up in terms, of, in terms of private individuals and private companies being able to, to sort of get into space? What, how does the law then treat them in terms of, obviously before it was America in space, but right. now it's just... Elon Musk in space. What? How? How? What? How does the law treat them differently? Well, that's a good point. And you know, the United States has included the language in their 2015 law that says it's citizens of the U.S. Um, and so that includes legal um, legal entities and individuals. So those citizens would be covered, and those citizens would have their individual rights, or a company would have their own rights um, over the land or the resources that they exploit. Um, so someone like Elon Musk, who's going to put out, you know, a a vehicle into orbit and then having it land on Mars. And, you know, if he wants to develop a smart city, you know, how does who, according to the U.S. law, he owns that smart city now and he owns that part of Mars. That That is the existing law in the U.S. Now, the international community is going to have a full conniption and say, wait a second, your national law is completely against what we say in the Outer Space Treaty. So we shouldn't even recognize that. So then even though according to US law, Elon Musk has that right, well, the international community can completely ignore that. And then you will have a fight over his smart city. So so which 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 world body then sort of looks into that? Is that the UN? Yeah, that would be the UN. That would and they would have to regulate that. But um according to what laws? I mean you now you're going back off this okay, well they violated the outer space treaty. Well you know, what do you do when you violate the Outer Space Treaty? Well, there's nothing really in there except for you start doing state-to-state negotiations. So if Russia came in and tried to take over his city, then, you know, the Russia, you know, a Russian delegate and the U.S. delegate would have to sit down and start negotiating. And they would, and they would sit down in the Hague, would they? Would that be where Well, they would... no, I mean, this would just be informal negotiations. Um, right. And then... <laughs> And what is and what is the outcome of that? Well, it'll be some sort of like written declaration that is non-binding, um, and it's just between the two of them. So someone else can come try and take it over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that Good gets. Movie. I mean. So so yeah. You can. Yeah. That. So that gets really complicated, doesn't it? I mean, I can see something like that with with someone that say sets up a base on Phobos. Yeah. And, it, and and it's just and it's like not much room for anyone else to have a base on Phobos. So the Russians go, well actually we could really do with a base on Phobos. And so you have this <laughs> so you then have this, yeah, strategic things. A, a bit like I suppose a bit like Gibraltar or something like that, where you have these exactly. strategic places that become incredibly contested. Well how exactly and how close do you I mean you know better than I, how close do you think we are to getting to that 
that place where we're actually setting down fixed structures on Mars. Yeah, it's it's always hard to say because I think I think if you asked someone in the seventies, they would they would just say, yeah, well, you know, by now we we definitely would be there. But I think right. everyone's had to re rejudge what what that is. I think we're we're sort of tied to the floor with the with the unbelievably annoying rocket equation that stops us from doing stuff. <laughs> then it, you know, it, it hasn't changed. You know, no one's changed the rocket equation. However, you know, there, there are things that say Elon Musk is doing that if, that if, it, if it progresses as he wants it to, then maybe we'll be, we'll be there quicker than we think. Right. But I guess, it, I, I guess it, it's now is the time that we kind of think about those, um, those situations, isn't it? I mean, I know in science fiction that they deal with a lot of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. so is there do, 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 do lawyers and 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 legal experts ever sort of peruse the science fiction and think to themselves yeah they've got that sounds like they've got that right or nah they would never do it like that yeah well it's always retrospective when you look at that but you're you're absolutely right we we do look at these types of things and to try and hammer it down because it has to be I mean, these words, every single word that's going to be in this treaty is going to be tried and tested, which is why the Outer Space Treaty like, is so vague, because in the 60s, you're just saying, well, let's just all cooperate because we don't even know what's up there or how we're going to get there. Um, so we do have to, I mean, we don't look at, you know, a Star Wars episode and say, well, this is exactly how they're doing it 100% right. But, um, but you, you just apply with to what you know and, and try to extrapolate those same principles abroad. You know, if you, even if you think about like commercial vehicles that are going up into space, isn't there some billionaire that's going to go up um, for that St. Mm. Jude's hospital? Um, he's going to go up there and he's paying for the whole thing. And it's just this individual guy who's now going to go into outer space and orbit. I think he's just going into orbit. But then how do you regulate um, space? You know, there's laws, there's property laws all over the, you know, in the on earth on what you own. I own my house. I own the air rights above my house up to a reasonable level because that's owned by these flight paths. Um, and that's what's going to be the future in definitely the moon, but definitely Mars by 2050. They're going to have so many commercial flights up there. This is my, my humble projection that they're going to have to start regulating, you know, putting flight paths and schedules and and who's going to run that, who's going to own that. Right now it's the UN, but what if Elon Musk gets out to Mars quicker and starts setting up his own? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems that some some people are quite willing to just ignore I mean, because because do does the concerns of say um, life on Mars, mm-hmm. if 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 Perseverance rover that's just landed actually does discover life, you know, actual living life on on Mars, even if it's microbial, mm-hmm. does that affect the law that that then suddenly is? The, You're a good lawyer. There, are, You're a good lawyer, Matt. <laughs> that's exactly what you should be. always <laughs> test it to the end and yeah. degree. Yeah, exactly. But if you find a new animal, like classified, is it an you know American animal that found it, um, or that that you found? Um, if you find this microbial life, do you have the right to explore that resource? Are you the if it's new and can be you know extrapolated for energy? I mean, it's it's just boundless. Yeah. Um, and how? Not yeah, you're right. We've been focusing on like the the macro view of of what Mars can offer, but also the micro view is is something that needs to be regulated and and how much can we extrapolate that resource and how much can we exploit these resources without violating some sort of 
some sort, you know, our, our ethical yeah. obligation to the maintenance of the outer space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, presumably it's quite feasible that uh, a commercial lander might discover a mineral on Mars that 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 doesn't exist on Earth, and and they want to exploit it. Mm-hmm. Would they? Would yeah? Would they? Would they have complete ownership of that mineral in the same way that that, that an American would? would. And a Luxembourgian would, and a Emirati would, but no one else would. Uh, uh, it would belong to everyone, and that's you know it is for free science. You know, there the movements to help like scientific investigations, but the actual ownership would be according to the national laws, whether you observe it internationally or not, would be that. I feel like an in-house counsel at a company that makes everything sounds so much bo- more boring because, you know, it's so much more fun to yeah. talk about space as like endless opportunity. And no, because I, I, I know I like it because I, it's a perspective that's clearly massively important because people, you know, particularly something like Star Trek will, will sell um, space exploration as though it has none of the frailties that come with with uh, none of the complexities really that right. come with with commerce and 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 humans in general, right? But you but you know that those things have to come along with it, unfortunately. And, yeah, and and there's nothing there's nothing you can do about it. And you know, and I and I you know, there's there's a great deal of sort of hard science fi uh, writers that kind of stick all the politics. You know, in fact, you know, the politics comes to the fore in quite a few of my sort of favorite sci fi writers. Um, but yeah, it's, it's no, it's really interesting to sort of look at the different scenarios because one big scenario, and I think we're miles away from it, would be that places like the moon, if you have a base on the moon or you have a base on Mars and people start getting born in those territories, yeah, is there is there then going to be a move where, where you say, actually, the moon and Mars, instead of being operated by Earth laws, mm-hmm. should really start formulating its own set of laws? Is, yeah. there, is there even a precedent for that? Well, it will be a Martian constitution, won't it? It's, I mean, you can talk about the secession of Catalonia being something equivalent, even though it's a bit different. It's kind of like it's become its own, it would be its own country and therefore need its own constitution to regulate its own laws and to have its own birthrights and to have its own citizenship rights. And so, yeah, and I think a this is what I'm saying. I mean, every type of perspective of law will have to follow. It's not just property law, it's constitutional law as well. What are the rights of individuals up there? Well, you have freedom of speech on Mars, you know? <laughs> that should be something that would, you know, that you have to consider. Um, can you steal someone's property on Mars? Um, if it's, you know, if something fall, like falls out of your pocket because it's lost gravity and is now in the air, have you lost ownership and therefore can it be criminalized? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to think about, but the, I mean, in the immediate future, I do mm-hmm. think the space resources one, like you said, is possibly that the one that will come up first. And I know that there are people who are a little bit disappointed that we're not sort of out there already, uh, pulling in space resources mm. and that perhaps more could be done about. In the background, are lawyers and, and legal experts worried about certain aspects of other aspects of of uh, resource utilisation? Um, I mean, I, the only th- so we, I've I've done a few cases that have to do with uh, resource exploration and exploitation in Latin America. Um, and so I would just kind of use kind of similar issues that have come up in those cases um, that can maybe be the same. So environment, 
uh, would be one or indigenous communities, which wouldn't be necessarily, I mean, depending if we find life on, on Mars, um, you know, the, the preservation of indigenous communities, it, but it's, it, at the end of the day, it's economic. Um, so I, I don't know other than, you know, the issues with mining, not only is it, you know, your, the, your property rights, but it's, uh, I would say it's just economic really. How are we going to value these types of things? Can they be sold? Um, can they be exchanged on a, a market? Can you can you incorporate a company on Mars and sell, have it on the stock exchange and sell shares in it? Like all of this will be possible, um, whether whether we allow that to happen in the near future before we get up there or not. Um, but that's that, I would just say that like you know environment and and indigenous resources and communities would be the one thing that that could come up, but. We, who knows? <laughs> so, so we, if 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 um, I was just going back to a, a point you made earlier, and right. I just it's, it's the thought just occurred to me that if if Elon Musk has has a Mars base, right? For example, a little Mars city, and like you said, under American law, because he's a citizen, it's his, right? It's it's his city. But if everyone else was moaning, if all the Europeans and all the and, and everyone else was going saying, no, this just this is just ridiculous. It's you know you you can't do this mm. because it's it's against the Outer Space Treaty. Where do you think America would? Which which deal would they renege on? Would they renege renege on their international commitments, or would they renege on their domestic commitments? Which 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 way would they go? Because because yeah. like presumably they're being pulled in those two directions. Have I have I, have I understood that correctly? One hundred percent, absolutely. And and this happens a lot where you have your national legislation that is actually um, incongruent to the to your international obligations. A lot of like the accession of EU member states into the EU, you have a lot of disputes when their national legislation actually competed with the international obligation. So that's exactly right. And um, in, in the EU member state example I've just given you, there are there is recourse to arbitration to resolve these types of disputes. But um, in, in this type of scenario, there isn't, because if you violate the Outer Space Treaty, what's the harm? Um, especially when it's just this premeditated legislation that could affect potential property rights. But I mean, this was a, this is an Obama act and now you have Biden in office. So I, I can imagine that he will not try to renege on, on the American. And that is, unfortunately, you can hear in my accent, but I, I know a bit about American uh, <laughs> psyche. And uh, unfortunately, I do not think the Americans would give up their, their rights that they've unilaterally established. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it it you know, I mean, even even as someone who's English, I, it, it's fairly obvious that the, the the Americans hold that right pretty pretty, pretty dear, dear to their hearts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really it's yeah, it's really fascinating. So with with arbitration, mm-hmm. does arbitration come in where where that, for example, if the UN. So in that particular thing, arbitration never becomes a thing because it's it's it's. It's, it's a not treaty provided for, thing. Yeah, it hasn't been it's, agreed it's just to not by the parties. For, yeah. So that's the main principle of arbitration is party agreement and party autonomy. So it has to be in the contract and it has to be in the treaty. You can agree afterwards, but it, it has to be agreed upon because the point of arbitration is that you're giving up your right to go to court. You're giving up your domestic rights. So that due process um, issue because you're giving it up such a such a fundamental right that you have to agree to it. Um, so the point that you're making is... Uh, 
kind of the point that you asked before, which is, will there be a new treaty or will it be an amendment? And I think there will be a new treaty. And I think in that new treaty, it's going to have to provide for a dispute resolution mechanism if you violate that treaty. Um, as a disputes lawyer, I always think that, you know, the most the strength of an instrument has to do with how you can resolve the dispute for breaking that instrument. Otherwise, it's just a handshake and um, a gentleman's accord. Um, so I think that that is where everyone's looking to is, you know, kind of like the law of the seas to provide some sort of venue to resolve disputes that arise therefrom. And then all of this can really fit in the gaps. So these treaties that I tell you that I work with, you know, th these provisions are not very complicated or very precise. It's, you know, the obligation to treat an investment fairly and equitably. That's the, that's the, the scope of the provision. And then we lawyers argue, well, what was this fair and equitable treatment? Um, so I see those similar provisions to be, would be implemented in a uh, potential treaty. So something a bit vague, but in the end saying, if you violate any of this, then you have to go to the, you know, the UN has its own body. It can go to the Hague. Um, the World Bank has its own body as well. Um, so I, it, I, I mean, it could go anywhere. So it's, yeah, so it, I mean, I'm, I may be being very simplistic no. here. It seems like the the Outer Space Treaty then really is just missing that instrument of arbitration to sort of say, well, or just a few lines that say, you know, what 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 would be fair, and if if we're all having a bit of an argy bargy about what's fair, how do we arbitrate it and 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 see it right? But presumably, the problem with arbitration is, and and those kind of vaguer rules that you have mm -hmm. is maybe is is maybe cultural so that you you know where where you've got say china and america see things very very differently mm -hmm. like so, so presumably that, that, that those are the sort of problem areas have, have i got that right yeah, or, am i being too simple there? no 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 i mean yeah i mean the outer space treaty also needs a bit more strengthening and in, in some of its provisions as far as when liability can arise and in, in what circumstances liability can arise and exceptions. For example, if there's war, you need to have some of these, you know, the ability to expropriate property for the national interest. You know, back in the old days, they would be like, okay, there's a war, we need to take your house because we need to put troops in there. Like that type of thing, maybe in outer space needs to happen to exempt you from these obligations. So there are a bunch of things to consider to make the outer space treaty better, not only arbitration, but I do think the arbitration provision will give you recourse to, to some sort of, you know, mechanism or compensation or, or something to to resolve the dispute. Yeah. So I mean, so it's but the, the but the problem with opening up the outer space treaty, or would would you scrap it, or would you just would you scrap it and do a similar treaty with add-ons, or do you try and amend it? This is a bit that, uh, and, and therefore, what is the difficulty with? Because it, it seems like it's really difficult to open up the Outer Space Treaty because no one wants to do it. Yeah, and you have 110 countries that have signed on to the language as it is. So you're going to get into an, you know, a full negotiation between all of the state parties having an opinion on how these amendments would work. Um, and I think the Outer Space Treaty would become a useless document if it was changed to what it would need to become. Um, so I think you would have to have a new treaty. But these, you know, new treaties come all the time and they get, you know, like the Moon Agreement, you get ratifications of only 15, 18. So it doesn't even come into effect. So we will try and it will happen, but I think it's going to it's gonna take a lot of effort, but it will have to be probably a new document. And then you're going to have to get buy-in from you know, a large number of countries. And just like you say, you know, you have different cultural backgrounds of these countries coming to the table. 
So you're going to have really, really long negotiations. And that's why the language gets vaguer and vaguer is because it, you need to get everyone to agree. Um, yeah. But you could do it bilaterally as well. For example, the U.S. and China could have a bilateral agreement on how they would respect each other's property. Um, you know, the Artemis Accords are only between the people that have really sent up a lot of stuff into space. So maybe that's a place to start is to get kind of the main players involved in agreeing. And then you can start kind of opening it up for like global ratification. In other words, the Outer Space Treaty was a, a huge achievement then, wasn't it? Absolutely. In getting that many people signing up. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, you know, and to agree that everyone, that no one has a right to it, everyone has a right to everything, I think is a huge concession for some of these like major superpowers, especially in the 60s. Um, so I think... I, I, the, I think the Outer Space Treaty should live and breathe and, and you know, have its mo- day in the sun, but um, it'll just lay in the background of something a bit more stringent in the future. Yeah, so it, 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 it's essentially become old-fashioned. But yeah, I mean, it, yeah, and you're right, in the 60s, for Russia and America yeah. to have been so... It was, it was probably motivating competition and just being like whoever gets up there first type of thing um, because mm. they didn't know when it was going to happen or or how many people were going to get up there. And I think that was kind of the 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 idea behind the U.S. I mean, in, in the law, it's called Comper- Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act. So I think that's kind of what they were intending to do in the 60s, um, which is all fine and good. Is there, is there, is there anything that we haven't, is there anything that, that we haven't covered that you'd like to you'd like to cover? No, I I mean, I hope we tied this as much to Mars as possible because I think the moon is passe now. So no, it's, yeah. it's definitely Mars is going to be where we're going to start thinking about populating and creating cities and, and everything like that. So I think that's where the, the focus of the, you know, the technology and the commercial side of things will have to match the law the most. Hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I guess... The asteroid belt as well. I know it seems silly, but I think you know, like you said, near Earth, near Earth asteroids. Mm. The, the NEOs that that are full of like resources. Yeah, I can see that Loads. being exploited at some point, and and you think that some must be better than others and easier to get to than others. Yeah, and then suddenly you'll have that. Just like the French and the English out fishing, <laughs> argy bargy out in, out in the uh, out in the oceans of the sea, yeah, exactly. out of space, yeah. Well, well, thanks very much for thanks very much for giving us that quick, massive rundown Thank on you, on, uh, on on space law. It is really really interesting. It's 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 a subject I keep wanting to sort of do, do an even even bigger dive. So, I'm 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 determined to get you back on. I'll I've keep you updated. Be- yeah, better, absolutely. Better questions. And if you yeah, obviously if you if you've um, got a really good case that comes up and 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 chucks up some interesting things, let me I'll know. I'll shoot it over to you. Absolutely. Well, so thank yeah, so thanks very much. Thank for, you, Matt. For, I, for I enjoyed making it. my Tuesday slightly more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, great. Well, I look forward to hearing it. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. I I really enjoyed that that chat. No, actually, it was it was a pretty pretty interesting interview. Uh, lots 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 of food for thought, right? That you know, it, you have all these treaties, but. If there is no way to enforce them, yeah, that that's that's my what's takeaway. the point? My takeaway is, yeah, there's 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 no point having a treaty, is there, if you can't do anything about it? You know, I mean, let's all agree 
that we will share all candy, <laughs> right? All 20 fictitious round of people around the table and then bring a ball with only five candy. And let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels a little bit like Kumbaya, this, this, this whole treatise in, in, at this time, not really connecting the economical interests of resources out there. Okay, and, and we are all very fine about it because it's out of reach. But the moment it becomes in, within your reach and all these economic interests take over, I don't see how these treaties will stand. No, but I, but they're better to be there than not at all. It's 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 almost it's like everything in life, isn't it? You have this continuum where you have the ideal situation at one end and the non-ideal situation at the other. And as a species, we're kind of always just bouncing in between the two <laughs> and trying to just yeah. stay. But what look, what is law other than a sort of agreements for society on situations that have some sort of precedent, okay? And and what is the best way to behave around that hmm. situation, right? But whenever you think of law of the future, you're just speculating. And sometimes you can be a little bit idealistic. Society probably will not work like that. Okay, you can already see with the mention in this in this interview of, of these agreements in which uh, individuals from the US, from Luxembourg, and I think it was from the United Arab Emirates, can claim ownership of mm. resources that are mined in outer space. Who's going to stop them? <sighs> Who knows? Well, it might be the... There is no... First of all, do you want to stop them? Why, why would we stop them? Again, this is not like Antarctica. There's a f finite resource. Yeah, but, that, but, but that's my point almost, is the fact that you've got treaties and you've got, you've got other people doing other things, but there's a kind of... There's a restraint, isn't there? There's some, there's some restraint. There's some kind of barriers and... And it's like being a child, you, you know, you don't, you don't stop them from doing everything, but there are barriers, there are constraints of, of which you, you put on them that, that, they, that they're continually push up against and cross over, et cetera, et cetera. But in my the view, those constraints, are there. those constraints are only economical. It's, it's the cost of access to space, Matt. I mean, there is no, has not been much activity because of how costly it is to go into space and on the, on the scale that you need to actually do the, the mining and gathering the resources and, and going to all these places. The reason why we aren't mining asteroids is because of the law, fact or fiction. No, the reason why we're not mining asteroids is because of Delta V. Exactly. Right. Okay. Which is which is the answer I was expecting. It's I, physics. But it, it, the reason why not at the moment that, that mining asteroids and getting those resources is cheaper than the cost of going to get them in the first place. Mm. There, there, there. You open Pandora's box. Look, I like I like the mention of the Martian Constitution. That will be key. Once you have a different planet with a different constitution, set of laws. That would be a very interesting experiment. Uh, do you know what? I think that that's at least 100 years away, though. Oh, I think more. Yeah, than that. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's at least 100 years away. So it's not going to happen in our lifetime. <laughs> Whereas I think no, no, no. 
she think I saw I saw a post from from Tori Bruno the other day. I have to show it to you. It's, it's, it's it was amazing. I think I think the proposal by Elon Musk is to have a Mars population to reach one million by twenty fifty. Mm-hmm. Okay, Which is clearly. So Tori Bruno does the following analysis. <laughs> Interest, interesting perspective. Let's make sure I follow you. One million permanent residents on Mars 20 years from now. So, 34,000 people on average emigrate to a settlement on Mars starting next year and every year after until, and every year after until 2050. Probably need to speed up Starship. Might need to upsize it a bit since we'll need to be sending 700 people to Mars each week for those 20 nine years. <laughs> Oops, there's only about a four-week window every two years that a chemical rocket can go to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. So let's try it again. We'll have 14 launch years between now and 2050. So that's closer to 72,000 people transported to Mars in each of those launch years, all of whom need to leave Earth in about one month a reasonable launch window within each launch year when the orbits are aligned. So that's the, the one month, the Mars mm-hmm. month, where you can launch all your missions. So you would have, from now to 2050, every time we, one of, we have one of those launch windows, you would have to be launching 72,000 people. Okay? <laughs> if we size Starship to a 500-person capacity, that's 144 Starship launches in a month. Wow. That looks pretty hard. Let's just assume 1,000 people per starship. That's only 72 launches in a month. Plus the development of the habitats to house 1 million people. Plus the launches to construct them, assuming some reasonable level of in-situ resource utilization. Plus delivery of food, water, and other consumables to support the population as it grows from 34,000 next year to 1 million 29 years later. This might be a bit of a tall order. Or we could establish an actual practical timeline for a brand new trillion dollar per year cislunar econosphere in the same time frame, which by the way would help to pave the way towards a permanent presence on Mars that could actually happen. This discussion doesn't have to be one or the other. It should be both both cis-lunar development and human exploration of Mars. That's Tori Bruno. He's an absolute lad, isn't he, Tori Bruno? I love, I love, I, mean, I love his tweets actually. And he often retweets uh, the Interplanetary podcast, which I like. Yeah, can't moan it. The only pet peeve I have with them is that they call their new rocket Vulcan, yeah. and Vulcan <laughs> is the name of the Ariane engine. Yeah, but that's what you get for calling it boring things like Roman and Greek gods. You all deserve to name each other. They need to be called funny things in the style of Douglas Adams. We better wrap this up. Yeah. Bye bye, Smart Cats! <laughs>